Okay, uh, beautiful weather. Amen. Yeah, and but you know, with the beautiful weather in the spring comes that dreaded time of finals, as Lexi just confirmed to us here a minute ago. Uh, and uh, we're not going to take a final today, but we are going to take a pop quiz. So pull out your pens, and on your study sheet, I want you to write down a yes or a no. Okay. And here's the question. Is discrimination of people wrong? Write down your answer. Write it down. Okay. Now, I think if you're like most people, you would say, well, of course it is. The concept of discrimination is anathema to our culture, uh, so much so that to encourage any kind of discrimination... It's pretty much of a social sin. Uh, And it's because, understandably, of the automatic association these days with racial discrimination, which is, in fact, unbiblical because we are all one blood. Nonetheless, nowadays, uh, discrimination is considered so bad because it extends beyond that, racial, to discrimination of any group for any reason. That's why it's so shocking to read Jesus' words in Matthew 7, verse 6, do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before the pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. You know, it's almost like we we start, we try to start, with a nice, calm, gentle Mr. Rogers. And suddenly he's transformed into Sergeant Carter! Screaming! All right, for those of you who aren't laughing, this is called boomer humor, okay? Some of us get this, some of us don't, okay? Understand that this is the same guy, Jesus, who told us, judge not. And some versions of the Bible separate out verse 6 from everything else, maybe because they don't know what to do with it. But in reality, this is the conclusion of Jesus' teaching on judgment. It seems so incongruous, yet if we have rightly divided the first five verses we'll see that this is the logical conclusion and a balancing truth to his command to judge not. He tells us we should not condemn. However, that's not the whole picture. If we were to leave it simply at judge not, Christ's followers would have no discernment, no discipline, no restoration, and lots of chaos. Some would turn a blind eye to heresy, which would could then rapidly expand into the church like a cancer. It's when we isolate statements that we get out of balance and in trouble. It's when believers with good intentions say, we must not judge, 
any teaching or practice or expression or music or movie that has any vague connection with Christianity. And that's when we fall into error. So in the first five verses of Matthew 7, our Lord tells us to avoid being hypercritical and hypocritical. We should not condemn or set ourselves up as the final judge of people, decide without knowing the facts or circumstances or without walking in somebody else's shoes. However, Jesus never tells us to not discriminate. Uh, So in order to get rid of the splinter in the eye of another the right way, we must first be able to recognize the log in our own. And then we'll be able to see his splinter. Uh, But to do that, we've got to be able to discriminate and discern between one person and another. And that's how we reconcile verse 6 with the first five. Now, let's go back to our, our contemporary understanding of the word discrimination. Now, even I recoil a bit when the old commentators use this word simply because the connotation of discrimination today is almost always negative. The classic definition uh, that the, the commentators use is uh, on your sheet there. It's recognition and understanding of the difference between one thing and another. And the example that's given in the dictionary is discrimination between right and wrong. But the one that comes to mind is a more current one, the unjust or prejudicial treatment of different categories of people, especially on the grounds of race, age, or gender. And the example given, of course, is victims of racial discrimination. Now, it's this second definition that dominates our culture and media, and it's become the primary connotation of the word today. Another word that's sometimes used in this discussion is discernment. And that's not the same word. It's softer, of course, uh, but it's, it's a little bit different. But the two words are sometimes used interchangeably. Discernment is the quality of being able to grasp and comprehend what is obscure, the act of perceiving. Okay? Uh, Now, the way that discernment is used in the Bible is a little closer, okay? Discernment is the ability to decide between truth and error, right and wrong, the process of making careful distinctions in our thinking about truth. In other words, the ability to think with discernment, as we read in the Bible, has become synonymous with the ability to discriminate biblically. And we see this in 1 Thessalonians 5, which teaches us the responsibility of every Christian to be discerning. And there it says, but examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. And the Apostle John tells us in 1 John 4, uh, gives us a similar warning, do not believe every spirit, but Test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. So, according to the New Testament, discernment is required of all believers. Now, all I ask of you today is that when I use the word discrimination, you accept, receive it in the classical sense, okay? Uh, not, uh, and that being discerning between one person and another. Now, first question is, for to whom is Jesus referring 
as dogs and hogs. And one thing should be obvious, this is not a compliment, it's a derogatory, these are derogatory terms. Dogs in that way, in that day, were not lap dogs like our Eva, okay? A more appropriate term would be mongrels, those that hung out at the, the garbage dump, the Gehenna. And pigs, of course, have always loved mud and were considered unclean by the Jews. Second uh, Peter 2 gives us a very graphic description of these very real people and then refers to the greater culpability of a sinner who hears about Jesus and then goes back to his former lifestyle. Uh, and it says there in verse 22, what the true pro- proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Some have taken what I consider a pharisaical view of dogs and pigs, uh, and they think that it refers to all unbelievers. And to categorize here, some extreme Calvinists have taken the sovereignty of God and predestination Uh, so far out that they conclude there is no need to evangelize. God's already determined who's saved and who's not. And this view turns the New Testament and the Great Commission on its head. John Calvin himself urged that it is our duty, quote, to present the doctrine of salvation indiscriminately to all. And Calvin said of this particular verse, it ought to be understood that dogs and swine are names given not to every kind of debauched men or to those who are destitute of the fear of God and of true godliness, but to those who, by clear evidences, have manifested a hardened contempt of God so that their their disease appears to be incurable. And John Chrysostom likewise categorizes the dogs and hogs as those, quote, living in incurable ungodliness, unquote. The idea here is to persist uh, beyond a certain point in presenting the gospel is to literally invite rejection of that good news, contempt, and blasphemy. So you get the impression here that Jesus is using shock to bring us to the reality that there really are people like this whose nature has never been renewed, who possess physical or animal life, but no spiritual or eternal life, who just won't listen and don't care a whit about how your life has been changed by Jesus. Why? Because they love their lives of sin. And in our Sunday school, this is exactly what Ray Comfort was trying to point out to the young people he was talking to when he convinced them by their own admission that their atheist views made no sense. But then they wouldn't go the next step to conclude that there must be a God. Some did recognize their own, their own blindness. Remember the courageous young man who admitted spontaneously, I'm lying to myself, okay? Others may have been thinking that, we don't know. And probably some persisted in their stubbornness. The problem is that Ray and you and I really don't know what's going on in the heads and hearts of people when they hear the good news. That's why we are to continue to be witnesses and leave the results to the Holy Spirit until it is 
obvious. And reality is that we must all be discerning in recognizing the point at which offering the gospel invites rejection with contempt and blasphemy. Jesus himself illustrated this principle when he instructed the the, uh, disciples in taking the gospels to the Jews in Matthew 10. And he told them there to discern who were worthy, the term that he used. And there in verse 13, he starts, if the house, if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Now, in Acts 13, we see the point at which people are recognized as dogs and hogs. Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch. And they're preaching in the synagogue at the invitation of the Jews. Uh, Paul eloquently explains how God worked through Israel up to the coming of Christ. Many believed and followed him. But then it continues in verse 44. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold. And they said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you, the Jews, first. However, Since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turned to the Gentiles. And this enthused the Gentiles, because somebody was now paying attention to them so much, that the word was spread throughout that region, causing the Jews to expel Paul and Barnabas from that area. It then states in verse 51, but Paul and Barnabas shook off the dust from their feet against them and went on to Iconium and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. He made this, Paul made this same determination about the Jews two more times uh, in Corinth in Acts 18 and in Rome in Acts 28. And in all three of these situations, he turns his attention away from the Jews and to the Gentiles because, as he says, they will listen. So, What does this verse say to you and me? We've got to recognize that there are all kinds of people and personal responses. And then we must learn somehow to discriminate righteously between them. However, we cannot give up on a person just because we fail to use a fitting approach on that particular person. Now, in our Sunday school, since January, we've been looking at the issue of evangelism, and hopefully we've all learned some things and become more emboldened. And one thing we've learned is that there's no one mechanical or cookie-cutter way of relating to people or witnessing. As God brings people into our circle of influence or awareness, we should assess each person and figure out his or her position then our presentation of the truth must adjust 
to fit that person. Mechanical witnessing using one method or approach can lead us to conclude that if a person doesn't respond to our method, he must be a dog or hog. And so we must give up on that person when another method or approach might just get through. Secondly, preparation is really important. We don't need a degree in psychology, but it really helps to know your New Testament. And instead of being egocentric and saying, well, this is how I am and how I relate to people due to my personality, we've got to join Paul. And we must become all things to all men so that by all means, some might be saved. Our approach will differ depending on whether we're dealing with a Jew or a Gentile, with an atheist or a religious person, a know-it-all teen or a calloused old man, a self-confident high society woman, or a homeless and hopeless alcoholic. Next, we've got to become expert in knowing what to give each type. We take the log out of our own eye and eliminate a condemning spirit because we really want to help somebody. But if we want to become fishers of men, we must know what bait to use for each. One thing uh, of which to be careful is the manner or tone in which we present the truth. Yes, there are true dogs and hogs out there that will take offense at the gospel no matter how truthful and lovingly presented. Uh, They will trample them under their feet and they will turn and attack you. But there are others who can be offended by the way that we approach them. Again, we should not rely upon any one method. If you start each conversation with, well, are you saved? You're going to offend some people. All right? Uh, You can speak the truth in an offensive manner. If a person is going to be offended, and some will be, let it be by the gospel and not by us. Finally, we've got to avoid distractions or getting too far off into the weeds. Some believers who can see where you're going and really don't want to go there with you may make assertions or challenge you or ask questions that divert from the gospel. We see an example of this in John 4 when the Samaritan woman at the well is confronted by Jesus. And she brings up all these distracting issues like the form of worship and the differences in people. Uh, to hide the, the sin in her life, Jesus takes her back to her sin through the law and discloses her need for salvation. You know, we've discussed uh, in the Sunday school uh, how we need sometimes to clear away the brush that some people have before they can even see their need for the cross. And sometimes they ask people, how can God, you know, how can a loving God ask, uh, allow for so much pain and suffering? Or don't all roads, all religions lead to God? Uh, And we saw in the series that we watched how it's in vogue in certain places to be an atheist. And we can use design and the order of the universe and DNA. These can can be very helpful in knocking down these walls of stubborn, unthinking blindness to reality. Then again, some unbelievers are experts at diversion when it comes to biblical things. If you can get past genuine brush clearing, 
It's usually fruitless to argue doctrinal issues like election and free will. One who does not, who is not born again, cannot comprehend such things. If they bring up certain inconsistencies, supposed in the Bible, and you don't know what to say, simply get back to the problem of sin and the need of a Savior of us all. Now, there are some implications that we can draw from verse 6. First, Jesus speaks here of pearls, and this isn't by accident. The treasure here is the very good news of salvation of mankind. It is priceless compared to all the wealth and the power, fame, and pleasure that the world offers. There is no comparison. We spend a mere vapor of time here on earth compared to eternity. Even more amazing, the creator of the universe is a perfectly just God who cannot accept any impurity into his presence. But we, as imperfect, sinful beings, we clearly fall short. Thankfully, that perfectly just God is a perfectly loving God. So much so that he put his own perfect son on the cross who endured hell for you and me that we might spend eternity in the, in the presence of our of our God. Nothing, if you think about it, nothing could be more valuable than that pearl. However, despite this invaluable offer of an undeserved eternal life, there is a hard reality that we see in Scripture and we, and most of us from our own experience, that many will not accept the gift. And while you and I probably hesitate to call people's names, partly because we really don't know where they're at until it, you know, their, their obstinance hits us like a brick wall, Jesus didn't stammer when he called them dogs and pigs. Uh, these folks really have no appetite for the bread of life washed down by living water. Now, Looking at the bigger picture here in the Sermon on the Mount, this is all a foreshadowing of that great metaphorical fork in the road that's coming up, the one that divides mankind into two groups. Just on the other side of the golden rule, we're going to come to Jesus' exhortation to enter his kingdom by the narrow gate and taking the straight road and avoid the wide gate and the street that we sometimes call Broadway. Sadly, what we're going to find is that most people have and will choose the wide and broad side of the fork. The third implication is kind of a hard one. It's not just that these people will reject the truth and refuse the offer. No, verse uh, 6 is an instruction to you and me. We are to avoid even presenting the riches of the gospel once another is clearly demonstrated that he is a dog or hog. It might be by cynical mockery, intellectual arrogance, a love of his sinful immorality, or maybe just he's aloof, he's self-sufficient. That begs the question, where is the line? You know, and sometimes it's really clear. This is the uh, Merle Thurl building 
in April of 1995. Just after a guy named Timothy McVeigh, a former soldier at Fort Riley, drove a, a U-Haul truck filled with fertilizer, parked it in front of the building, and left and then detonated it, killing, I think, 168 and, and uh, injuring, I think, 600 others. Uh, McVeigh stated that his only regret was not completely leveling the federal building. One of the brothers of a, a fatality in the attack witnessed McVeigh's execution years later. He described McVeigh as having, quote, a totally expressionless blank stare. He had a look of defiance that if he could, he'd do it all over again. Okay, that's pretty clear. But for most of us, in most situations, it's a little bit more ambiguous. It reminds me a little bit of our problem in uh, the law with a thing called pornography, which is a big deal these days. Uh, certain expressions are illegal. They're called obscene. But defining that is another matter. Today, in the course, we use a thing called community standards. So what's illegal in one community may not be illegal in another. And you can tell where that's taken us. All right? It's a slow, gradual descent. However, at least it's a standard. Before there was a standard, it was just whatever the judge thought, which led one Supreme Court justice to conclude, I can't define obscenity, but I sure know it when I see it. Well, that's kind of where we are with this whole issue of dogs and hogs. If we can recognize a scoffer, can reasonably conclude that he will only respond to the gospel with disdain, then we have to move on and not waste time or energy and certainly not invite blasphemy. We must also recognize that this verse is balanced in a larger context. Jesus has commanded us, as much as we don't want to hear it, to love our enemies. Therefore, the command to not contend with dogs and hogs does not give us an excuse to be vindictive. We can't conclude that there was no need to witness because they'll just reject the gospel. We need to remember that many, including some of us, were resistant to the Lord before coming to him humbly on our knees for the free gift of salvation. There is no rule that produces an infallible approach to all situations, but we can look at examples of how Jesus approached different people and groups. Uh, when Jesus criticized the traditions of the religious leaders in Matthew 15, they were offended. He did not hesitate to expose them. He said, leave them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. When threatened by Herod, Jesus called him a fox, kind of a dog. And when whole cities do not respond to his works, he pronounces judgment on them and says that it's going to be worse for them than it was in Sodom and Gomorrah. On the other hand, he is patient and compassionate with certain groups. Uh, and he did not rebuke Thomas when he doubted his resurrection. And he even wept over Jerusalem 
because of its unfaithfulness. Now, think about think of all the Christians that you know, you know, and you'll see that some tend more toward truth and some more toward love and mercy. But each of us should be ready to go both ways in our discernment of others. Patient as long as there's any sign, any hope of openness to the truth, but willing to walk away if a dog or hog presents itself so that God is not blasphemed. At this point, let's try to draw some conclusions from this passage. One is that we are presented here with a terrifying picture of the effects of sin and evil upon mankind. Sin makes everybody a dog or hog and creates an antagonism toward the truth. Paul tells us that the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. In other words, it is the nature of biblical dogs and hogs to hate God. Paul says that hatred extends beyond the vertical relationship with God to the horizontal one with others. He says in in Titus 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. We know we get different reactions from different people, but if we present the truth, some, perhaps just a few, will consider it hate speech. If we're so bold as to mention the blood of Christ, some will laugh in mockery. That is what sin does to some. It turns some into hateful beings who oppose purity and truth and love and God himself. Understanding what sin does to people is essential. When people don't respond to our subtle or overt invitations to receive or just think about Christ, we can become impatient and wonder why that person can't see and understand the truth, their need for a Savior. And it's this impatience in us comes when we don't understand that people are under the control of sin and Satan to one extent or another. They're deceived by the devil, and they don't see the value of spiritual pearls and their need for God. Their life and their understanding is literally polluted by sin. And it's only when we understand this spiritual blindness that we can understand why Jesus has such compassion for them. Why so much pity? And we are to follow his lead and have the same spirit of compassion for the lost. What should come across to us most clearly here is that these people cannot and will not understand the truth of God's word until they're born again. We've got to remember that each of us was dead in our trespasses and sin, and it's only because of the grace of God that we are spiritually alive today through the Holy Spirit. While we're here, let's consider where each of us individually are, okay? Think of the concept of truth in God's word. And it's described as being in two categories. One is milk, and the other one is strong meat. Some milk truth can be digested by beginners or new believers, and the dogs and hogs can't even stomach that. However, regardless of where we are, each individually, each of us is exhorted by the author of Hebrews to pursue perfection.
perfection. Okay? That's growing more and more complete in the Word. We are to lay the foundation to be sure. But once laid, we've got to exercise ourselves and study in order to be able to digest strong meat. An example of strong meat with the beginning of Ephesians, where Mike is driving through right now, where it talks about questions of, of uh, uh, predestination and, and election and, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, as we grow, these questions become more clear and palatable. And these are truths that are given to those who can receive them. Jesus says repeatedly through the Gospels, he who has ears to hear, let him hear implying some don't. Therefore, if you find yourself, when you read these kinds of difficult passages, kind of glazing over or saying, whatever, that might be a sign that some self-examination would be in order. Uh, Am I really growing as Christ calls me to? Am I spending enough time in the Word? Do I pay attention in Sunday school or in the big meeting like this to the teaching? Am I hungering and thirsting after righteousness? You see, you and I have a great privilege to be custodians and expositors of the word of God to those who do not understand. Therefore, we need to consider how we're spending our time in the Bible and is it causing us to grow? If not, remember the old definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result? Certainly, we've got to spend time reading and meditating on the Word. But if you just find yourself reading words or just looking at the page of your Bible, do something. Study to show yourself approved to God, not ashamed, so that you can rightly discern the Word of truth. If you need a study help, get one. You know, there's all kinds of things online. There's a Christian bookstore right over here. Get one if it'll help you. But then understand, it's more than just study. Talk to your Father who loves you in prayer, individually, as couples, as families. Listen and watch how He answers prayer. The more we understand His truth and His ways, the better we'll be able to explain it to others. Again, we cannot expect unbelievers to understand spiritual truth before they're regenerated, before salvation. And this is the simple gospel where it comes in. So, if you are a young Christian trying to understand the milk of the word yourself, you can be a vessel used by God to reach others for Christ. Sometimes even better than some of us older Christians because you won't be tempted to get off into the weeds of meteor issues. Just be honest about how little you know, but give them the simple truth that you know you're a sinner and you know God is perfectly just and can't stand you to be in His presence without payment for that sin. But He's also perfectly loving and He sent His Son to the cross for you and me. And that lost person. And all we've got to do is accept that simple gift. Confess, repent, and allow the Holy Spirit to do the work in us. You know, uh, 
We call ourselves lion and lammers sometimes. But really, all followers of Christ should be lions and lambs. We are to follow his example. He is the lion of Judah, proclaiming the truth of God and warning of the judgment, even calling people names that certainly offend. Why? Because he loved them so much. He wants to warn them of the coming judgment. However, Mr. Beaver in the Chronicles of Narnia said it very well. When Susan was about to be introduced to Aslan the lion, and she was afraid because lions are not tame things, and she said, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver responds, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. He's a lion. But he's good. He's good because he's also at the same time the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He has such great compassion for the lost and makes his love obvious to all of us. He offers the free gift of forgiveness of all of our sins. If only we will accept. Father in heaven, we give all praise to you. Because yes, you are perfect justice. Allowing no impurity in your presence. At the same time, you loved us so much that you gave your son. Who bled and agonized and died on the cross for every one of us. And if only the lost would see that. Give us, Lord, discernment, discrimination, and understanding who will listen. Help us to spend our time and our efforts and our energy on those who have any hope of hearing and seeing the truth. We give our praises and our glory to you now and forever. Amen.